0: Have you ever seen these, um, I think they're called motivational posters. They've got the nice black frame and then there's a picture inside of some scenic, uh, beautiful landscape or some great human achievement. And then underneath that, there's, there's a single word that's supposed to de- define it with a little pithy stain. You know what I'm talking about? It's like like the picture might be a great ocean. And in this great big ocean, you've got a sunflower sailboat, a little 10-foot sailboat out in the middle of the ocean. And a man in the boat and underneath the the picture, you've got the word courage. And then the pithy statement says something like, you will never discover new shores or you will never discover new worlds unless you're willing to lose sight of the shore. That kind of thing. And you see it, you go, oh yeah, I need courage. That's right. Uh, But somehow in the back of your mind, there's this little voice that says, you know What? one halfway decent ocean wave and that sunflower sunk, you know, and this man on there is going to be shark bait by the end of the night, you know, I don't, I don't know. Those, those are nice, inspiring things, but they're not always all that realistic. I've got some uh, realistic motivational, maybe demotivational posters that I will look at. I think they acu- uh, accurately reveal life a little bit better. Defeat. For every winner, there are dozens of losers. Odds are you're one of them. Yeah, there you go. Stupidity. Quitters never win. Winners never quit. But those who never win and never quit are idiots. Okay, yeah. Failure. When your best just isn't good enough. Futility. You'll always miss one hundred percent of the shots you don't take, and statistically speaking, ninety nine percent of the shots you do. Okay, there is some realism, all right. <laughs> don't you love this? It's the way I ski. Inaptitude. If you can't learn to do something well, learn to enjoy doing it poorly. Okay. (laughs) Losing. If at first you don't succeed, failure may be your style. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Mediocrity. It takes a lot less time and most people won't notice the difference until it's too late. I like that one. (laughs) Don't you love this picture? Mistakes. It could be that the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. <laughs> Pessimism. Every dark cloud has a silver lining, but lightning kills hundreds of people each year who are trying to find it. That's the reality. Procrastination. Hard work often pays off after time, but laziness always pays off now. <laughs> An agony. Not all pain is gain a little more realistic and we can laugh Uh, but when our lives are in that mode and we begin to feel like our lives are futile or we see our failure or defeat and we realize we've given it the best we could and we still failed it wasn't good enough and we begin to think that our life is nothing more than to serve as a warning to other people it's not so funny anymore and what do we do when we're in that situation, because you know we're all going to be there, no doubt, some of us are, are there, there right right now. What do we do? Now, with Al Caponish-type folk, when that happens, easy enough, we've got our answers right? Well, God's trying to get their attention. And God's patience has run out. And you know, they're just reaping what they've sown. baby, it's harvest time, you know or whatever. And with and some truth in all of those things. But what do you do with somebody who is they're a good person? Maybe they, they love the Lord. Maybe their faith is strong and everything goes south and they get the phone call in the middle of the night or the doctor's report is not real good or economically speaking things are a mess or there's tension at, at home or they're just stuck in this dead-end type job. What do you do with that? A little bit harder to answer. When, when that comes up, we might cry out secretly, not always in front of everybody because that's not Christianly, politically correct, but inside we're going, oh, oh, God, why? What are you doing? Are you real? If you've been reading our Old Testament challenge, you finished up the Pentateuch, the book. You finished up the book of Genesis this this week. And uh, last multiple chapters in the book of Genesis One of the most famous stories in the Bible And I believe the answer to what you do When life throws you a curve is listed there And so what we're going to do this morning Is we're going to do 50,000 fly, flyover of that story And we're going to see if we can draw some insight for our lives So if you got your Bibles, if you'll turn with me We're going to pick the story up uh, Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis Man, I can get my together Genesis chapter 37 Genesis 37. We're going to jump right in. Verse Uh, 2. By the way, my text and the text on the screen are going to be a little bit different, and I apologize for that. But I think it's close enough you'll get it. Joseph, a young man man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now, Joseph... Is uh, number 10 kid, 10 boy of this, this family. His grandfather uh, was, uh, uh, great grandfather was Abraham. Uh, Joseph, first time we see him, this isn't the guy that married Mary, just in case you, you're wondering. This is way before that. But, but this guy, first time we see Joseph, he's in the, the pasture, he's a shepherd. And you need to know that shepherds were not highly esteemed. I mean, in very few cultures, even the cultures that depended on it, was shepherding a prestigious position. Remember when Samuel goes to see Jesse's looking for a king. He says, let me see your boys. And so they go through all of Jesse's boys by name. And Samuel says, it's not one of these. Do you have any others? And Jesse won't even name the, the, the baby of the family. He says, well, there's the youngest, but he's out in the field with those sheep. It's a, it's a form of derision. It's pejorative. You don't want him, obviously. Look where he's at. Remember when David went to go see his brothers and they were front line of battle. Right? They were had a position of significance. They were warriors. And what does the oldest brother yell at David and, and sarcastically angry across the, the field says, go back home to those few sheep that you're supposed to be watching. That was like the greatest slam that he could get. Remember the birth of Jesus. When the the authors of the Bible want you and I to know that Jesus came for all men, so they show us both extremes. You get the magi coming, who are the wisest of wise. These guys wrote the philosophy books. These were the the most educated royal blood. They come and they bow down to Jesus. And then to get to, to as far as you can possibly get away from the magi, you've got... The shepherds, whose whose testimony was not even admissible in court just because they were shepherds. It was never a good thing to be a shepherd. There's no shepherd's hall of fame. The pasture is a place of seemingly insignificant life. Let me ask you, might you be in the pasture today? You're not the CEO. You're not upper management. You're not in charge of your union. Reality is you're not going to be. You recognize that. You you're, you're, uh, maybe feel like you're stuck at home in your gifts and your, your abilities. It could go somewhere. Yeah, they're, they're not being u- utilized. And that book that you always want, want to, wanted to write, well, it's never going to get done. You realize that your dreams are so much greater than your ability to fulfill those dreams. You are just an average, normal, average Joe, average Joseph. You're in the pasture. Your, your is never going to be on the box of Wheaties. No one's ever going to give you a Grammy award, or you're not going to win the Nobel uh, Prize. You're probably going to end up finishing your life doing something that any number of people could do. Then you're going to die in obscurity, contributing virtually nothing to the betterment of the world. Happy Sunday, right? Ah, thank you so much for that. (laughs) But you you, you think, you know what? I could probably do some great things for God, but no one's going to give me a chance. God won't even give me a chance here. You're in the pasture. Seems like life is just insignificant. It's mundane. Now, Joseph knew some stuff about being in the pasture. He knew three things. First of all, he knew that God had him there. We get this wild idea about God's will, that God's will is usually going to kick into place when things are going good. When I get out of the pasture, when I get onto the next thing of life, when I graduate school, when this happens, that's when God's will is going to start. No, 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 God's will starts yesterday. It's in the pasture. This is where God has him. And Joseph knows this, that his father was a shepherd and his kids theoretically will be shepherds. And this is just where it was supposed to be. He wouldn't have these great ambitions to get out. He was, he was okay with that. He recognized that God was with him in the pasture. This is huge. You know, in his entire life, Joseph was kind of a famous guy in the Bible. To our knowledge, God never spoke to him. To our knowledge, we think God comes to all these guys in the Old Testament and is always showing up and talking. Only once in his entire life was there a, a supernatural. Did he have a supernatural experience with God? Only once. That's when he was in the pasture. If you're finding yourself in the pasture, let me let you know and encourage you to think that, you know what, maybe life doesn't start when you get out. Maybe you are in the place that he has you, he's with you, and there you can hear his voice unlike any other place you can possibly be. Joseph knew something about the past year. But his life doesn't stop there. It goes on in verse 3. It says, Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age. You know how the baby, the family gets babied and spoiled, and the rest of us all, all hate them. Well, the same thing here. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Now, let me read for you. I don't have this on the screen, so just kind of sit back and listen. Um, Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem in Israel. That's Jacob said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are grazing their flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dotham, Dotham City. You've heard of that place. Uh, But they, they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal has devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Verse 23, so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, his richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty, there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. These are trader guys, merchants. And Judah said to his brothers, "'What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come.'" Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brother's are great kids, if you want to kill your brother, you can't do that. You can sell him to Ishmaelites, you just can't kill him. I think that's the moral of the story. So when the Midianite merchants came by, the brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for twenty shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Uh, Joseph went from the pasture to the pit. The pit. The pit is a place of pain it's a place of loss it's a place of grief uh, here's a question: is it ever god's will for you to be in the pit? Yeah, yeah, it is. It goes against what we want, but it is so you 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 ask well why? The book of Job tells us several things and one of the things the book of Job lets us know is that it is spiritually counterproductive to ask the question, why? Why has it put me in, in the pit right now? I don't know. I don't know if we're looking for, for wise answers on that and not always sure. Oh, but I know this. That sometimes being in the pit, and I, I believe it's biblically and personal experience, it's in the The only place you can look when you're in the pit is up. And when, when you're in, in, in the, the pit, that can be, can be, doesn't have to be, but it can be a refining process. Uh, diamonds are coal that's been under incredible pressure and heat. Perfume, flowers that have been crushed. And sometimes, somehow, when we're in the pit, our faith can be made to shine like it never could if we weren't there. I mean, look at the, the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in, in my flesh. We really don't know what that, that was. It he calls it a set, messenger of Satan to torment me. Some think it was this, uh, eyesight issues, but we really don't know. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore... I'll boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Paul's thinking, you know, if I don't have this detriment, whatever it is, if I don't have to be in the pit here, Lord, I can accomplish a whole lot more for you. And the Lord's saying, you you, you may not understand, but I need you to be in there so you'll lean on me, so you will rest on me. Being in the pit is not a, a fun thing. Joseph knew, though, three things about the pit. He knew that God had him there. He didn't understand all the, the wise, but he knew God had him there. He knew God was with him there. He knew that his job in the pit was to trust God and was to serve him. Let me ask you, are in the pit this morning? And no one really likes to be there. No one in their right mind would want to stay there if you can get out, get out. Uh, but if God has you there, your your response to trust him and to be faithful is going to be dependent on your understanding of the fact that he is there with you and that he is sovereign even over life's pit experiences. Something he somehow he wants to use it to redeem something. I don't always know what. And I don't have to. He's God. He's sovereign. Joseph moves from the from the pasture to the pit. But then life goes on. In chapter 39, verse 1, it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guards, the minister of defense. is a pretty big guy. He bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And the Lord was with Joseph. Notice that. I tell you, if you've got it in your own Bible, you kind of want to circle that. The Lord was with Joseph. Because he's not in the promised land right now. But the Lord is still with him. And he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when the master saw that the Lord was with him, you want to circle that, that, and that the Lord gave him success, you want to circle that, and everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. And Potiphar put him in charge of his household. And he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household. You can circle the Lord part. Blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord, you can circle that, was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left Joseph's care, everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. You know, Joseph's got it all right now. For being a slave anyway, he pretty much rose to the top. He's in charge and the minister of defense, everything. And the minister of defense recognizes that Joseph is the geese, goose that lays the golden eggs. And so he's probably treated well. He's got all this power. He's got a lot of authority. And he's probably got some cushion. On top of it all, he looks good. We know that scripture doesn't or seldom talks about someone's physical appearance. So whenever Scripture mentions someone's physical appearance, our, our uh, radar should, should click on and we should go, Ah, what's going on here? Eh, same thing here. And he looked good. He was well built. He was handsome. And after a while, see, Mrs. Potiphar didn't miss that. His master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. And Joseph goes from the pasture to the pit to the pot. The Potiphar. Pot. The pot... The pot, I'm working on an outline here. The pot is, though, the place of, of temptation. Now, now, be with me, because this is kind of uh, theologically, gonna, this could shake you a little bit. Is it ever God's will for us to face temptation? Yeah. Looking through Scripture, yeah, it is. Yeah, it is if you think about it this way, in the face of temptation, in the pot, you don't have any, there's never a greater opportunity that you have to tell the Lord that you love him. Now, we are... are Always, hear me, hear me, don't go say, okay, great, I'm going to go get in that face of that temptation. No, no, we're always supposed to flee from temptation, always. Proverbs 7, if you walk into the arms of temptation, you're a fool, you avoid it. Jesus said, pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. If that's what it takes, you avoid temptation, but you know as well as I do, sometimes it sneaks up on you, sometimes it pushes you into a corner. What do you do with it at that point? At that point, what temptation does is it takes your professed love for Christ and it puts it into the ring with your flesh and you got to know that there's going to be a battle and one of them is going to walk out victorious it's when that happens when the heat starts to rise you know and when 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 you start to get sweaty when the the thirst starts to build up and you just feel like you got it this has got to be quenched if we would just stop and just listen you might hear Jesus say do you love me Because you're going to answer that question. You won't answer it with words. It's easy to answer that with words in church and Sunday school, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. But there is where the answer means something because you're going to answer it with actions. And if you and I, temptation throws our our love for Christ into the the ring with, with temptation, with our flesh, if we come out victorious, you know what happens to our flesh? Our dies a little bit it it, it weakens you know what, you know what happens to our, our faith? It gets a little bit stronger, it gets purified i wish I wish so much that sanctification could come without these things, but it 's these things that God uses to grow us, and so if in fact you are in the pot right now, if you can get out, get out, avoid all tempt- avoid it, avoid it, flee. But if you if you're, you're you're stuck in some way, you got to know that that what Joseph knew about the pot. First of all, God had him there. He, Joseph didn't choose this on his own. God brought him here. Uh, God was with him here. Remember all that? God is with you. God is with God. Lord is with you. Lord is with him, and he knows that his job, even in the face of the, the pot, is to. Be faithful and to trust God. Now, think about Mrs. Potiphar for a second. Uh, Mrs. Potiphar. Now, it was just a little bit of conjecture going on. I got that. But according to Mr. Potiphar's status and position in the empire, it would have been relatively important for him to have Mrs. Potiphar be a looker. She didn't look nice. Because of their status in the society, as well as because of their economic standing, no doubt Mrs. Potiphar was always dressed in the nicest stuff, the most fashionable fashions. Her hair was done always perfectly. Her makeup, her sandals, she was probably looking fine. Picture, picture Joseph. Joseph, red-blooded uh, Jewish boy, didn't want this, never chose this for himself. This is God's fault that he's here. He doesn't have a Meshach, Shadrach, and a Bendigo to hold him accountable to say, hey, man, what are you doing? Think about this. Where are you going? He's by himself. Nobody will really know. It's, it's the pot. If you and I end up in the pot, in the face of, of temptation, we need to know. Even in that, in some degree, in God's sovereignty, He wants to use that to grow us. He is with us. And your job and my job is to respond with trust in Him. We need to be faithful with that. So Joseph was... In, in the pot. But he doesn't stay in the pot, does he? He, he? he changes locations because verse 13, when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand, but the last time he lost his jacket to some folk, bad things happened, right? Well, it's about to happen again. Uh, and had run out of the house, she called. What? Let me back up a little bit because we don't want to miss what Joseph's response was. But he refused. I'm sorry miss this part. Key part here. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her. My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. Uh, she turned on the charm. She was seeking to allure him. She was seeking to seduce him and she did everything she knew. He realized, get out of there if I can. But one day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and she said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard my scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside him until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. Burned with anger. Of course he would. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Joseph was thrown into the royal dungeon because of the high-ranking status of Potiphar. He was thrown into the royal dungeon, same place that Pharaoh's enemies would be thrown. Very, very, very crucial. It's going to come back in a second. But while Joseph was there in prison... The Lord was with him. You can circle that. And showed him, the Lord showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden so that the warden put Joseph in charge of all that he held in prison and he was made responsible for all that was done there and the warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord, circle that, was with Joseph and gave him success whatever he did. Joseph went from the pasture to the pit to the pot to the prison. I think about poor Joseph. He was doing everything right here. I'm mean, right, right? He was doing everything right. He was trying, you'd think, I mean, his 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 love for the Lord and his flesh were thrown into the ring, and they boxed, and his love for the Lord came out victorious. You'd think God would help this guy out, but he's thrown in prison. And on top of that, his reputation is gone. I mean, from now on, everybody in Potiphar's household is going to be thinking, oh, yeah, Joseph. <laughs> he fooled us all. He had this nice religious schoolboy type of thing. We know he was just some twisted sex pervert. We know what's going on in his heart and mind. The prison is the place of injustice. Have you been or are you in uh, the prison? I've got some people that I know of. I'm sure you know folk. Will be carrying around scars for the rest of their life, be no fault of their own. Some evil on the outside uh, reached in and marked them in such a way that that's just going to be part of their story from this point on. Have you ever been there? Maybe not even to that extent. Maybe uh, someone would judge your motives. You know, the, the wild th- I love this, this this psychology here because if uh, you love somebody. You always attribute good things to their motives, don't you? Love believes all things, hopes some things. Yeah, yeah, you attribute good things to their motives. Well, they really didn't mean that. Yeah, we, we, even if they did, you attribute good things to their motives. But if you don't love somebody, what do you attribute to the motives? It's always evil. I'm sure they were thinking, oh, rah, rah, rah. This is an easy way to tell if we really love somebody or not. Maybe someone has gossiped about you. I wish so much this didn't happen. But folk think they know. A and B and they put them together and they come up with their answer and of course I'm going to tell everybody this is a fact and maybe they've been gossiped about you're the victim You have this was not you're not perfect but you know what on this one you didn't do it but your word is all out your reputation is destroyed this is where Joseph was Joseph knew a thing or two about, about the prison but he, he knew that God had him there God was with him. He knew that God was with him there. His presence wasn't gone. Sometimes in the prison, um, we don't hear his voice, but his presence is there all the same. And Joseph knew while in the prison that he needed to trust God and he needed to be faithful. If you were to follow this, uh, because he's in the royal dungeon, a couple of Pharaoh's servants... Get Pharaoh ticked off He throws them in there He throws in his baker And he throws in the butler Well Joseph Because he's in charge We don't know how long He's been in there to earn this right with the warden, I don't, I don't know. But he's in charge and he comes across these two guys and they hadn't had a good night's sleep and he says, what's the problem? And they say, we each had dreams and we don't know what they mean. It's not a normal dream. There's something wild about this dream. And so Joseph says, well, tell it to me. And so the butler says, well, I was dreaming and there was this vine and they had three branches on it and I took grapes off the branches and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup and gave Pharaoh the cup. What does this mean? And Joseph said... Ugh. Well, what it means is this. The three branches are three days. In three days, you are going to be restored. Pharaoh's going to lift your head up. You're going to go back in. You're going back to work, buddy. He says, oh, this is good. And so the baker hears this story and says, well, I had a dream too. On my head were three baskets, and that top basket was filled with pastries and bread. And a bunch of birds came and started eating. I don't know what this means. And Joseph says, well, this is what this means. The three baskets, three days. And you need to know that Pharaoh's going to lift your head up too, but he's going to lift it off your body. You are done. Sorry about that. You know, it stinks to be you, but you're going to be executed. That's the, and that's what happens. And then as the butler is leaving the jail, Joseph grabs him, if you read this fascinating, and says, Would you remember me when you get out of this place? Because I didn't do any. Who wants to live in the prison? Joseph didn't want to live. No one does. He says, Would you just remember me? I know God is with me here, but boy, if I can get out of this, I want to. Butler leaves doesn't say anything. Didn't say a word. Then two years later, Pharaoh has this dream and in Pharaoh's dream he's got these three or seven big cows and they're healthy and they're strong and, they're, and they come in they're marching through and wow but then behind, right behind them are seven scrawny weak ugly cows and they come to eat up the, the other cows they're not supposed to be carnivores what's going on and then he sees that there's corn he's got this corn stalk and seven ears of corn and they're healthy and they could like feed the whole village and they're wonderful but then this scrawny corn comes up and, and this corn eats the other corn strange dream what's this corn eating corn doesn't understand it so he calls all his magicians and enchanters and astrologer guys and he says here's my Dream, what's it mean? And they're all going, I don't know. What's it? And the butler's watching all this transpire. And when everyone strikes out, he goes to Pharaoh and says, You got a guy down in your dungeon two, two years ago. I had this dream, and Brian Baker and things happened just the way he said. And so, chapter 41, verse 14 Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. I can't do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God will give Pharaoh the answer. Can you imagine, for just a second? I mean, we could, let me give you a. A spoiler for just a second, this is going to end up where Joseph ends up in in the palace, right? You figured it had to be a piece, going to end up in the palace. But can you imagine if when he was in the prison and he knew God somehow was his sovereign, and God had him there, and God was with him, but he was so focused on his pain? Isn't this what we? This is our default system when we're in pain. We turn the focus in. We focus on ourselves on how unjustly we've been treated. What we want to do at that point is we want to vindicate ourselves. We want to prove ourselves right. We want to demonstrate that we did not, that our reputation is fine. We want to, we're focused on us. Now, if Joseph had been that way and had missed while he was in the prison, recognizing that in the prison is a great opportunity to serve, if he would have missed that, his whole future... Matter of fact, the future of Israel. Matter of fact, the promised Messiah. Everything is in, is in jeopardy right here. And because of the fact that while this guy was in prison, he realized, even though this is a, a tough, I'm in a tough spot right now in life, and it looks like the butler forgot me, and I'm going to forget me. I, I'm not going to ever get out of here. And it's just, he focused on serving and helping. Now, if you look around yourself in your own world for a minute, other people, the Butlers, the Bakers, the Mrs. Potifers, the, the people we wish weren't in our world right now. Those people are, are not there by accident. They're not inconsequential. They're not irrelevant to God's will for your life. You know what, as a matter of fact, those people are, are God's will for your life. They are God's will for your life. And the way you treat them, wouldn't it be well if they were all a test? All the people that we dislike they're a test from God. And the way we treat them, we gossip, we wish they weren't here. But we're ignoring reaching out and seeking to serve. And because Joseph did that, because he was able to get beyond that, and in his prison experience, he served and he reached out and he honored God where he was, even if it was in prison. Because of that, the whole trajectory of the the world, I would say the, the redemption of the world, was changed or preserved. Uh, amazing, amazing stuff. What we need to know when we're in prison is that God is sovereign. God has us there. He's with us. And then we've got to decide what we're going to do with that. Are we going to focus on ourselves or not? Look, look, look at Job, Job 23. We have that. Job 23 it Here, let me see. If it, tell me if it comes up. Is it up? Y'all, tell me if it comes up. I'm see if I can beat the screen. Oh, okay. All right. Playing with my mind. All right. Uh, Job. After everything has happened with Job, I mean, everything has gone wrong. Right. His family has died. He's lost his health. He's lost his possessions. He's in a mess. He says, "If I go to the east, he, speaking of God, is not there. If I go to the west, I don't find him. When he's at work in the north, I don't see him." When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. In other words, I can't see God in anything. He's nowhere. He's quiet. He's left. He's not in my life. But then he says this, But he, God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. My feet have closely followed his steps. I have kept to his way without turning aside. I have not departed from the commands of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my daily bread if we're in the prison the decision that we have to make is am I going to live as if God for whatever reason that I don't understand has me here that God is with me and that I'm going to honor him here or am I going to turn all my focus on me that's, that's the question we have to ask Joseph goes from the pasture to the pit to the pot to the prison to the palace yes you knew it was coming so after the Joseph tells Pharaoh this is the meaning of your dream you know Joseph Pharaoh's got this wild dream they bring Joseph, Joseph in they ask him the dream he 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 tells Pharaoh, he says, Pharaoh, listen, the seven big cows, the great looking cows, you're going to have seven years of plenty, but then you're going to have seven years of The scrawny cows, seven years of famine, they're going to destroy everything that that you saved for the good years. Then the seven good years of corn, same thing, so you're going to have seven great years of of plenty, but then the seven scrawny ears of corn, they're going to devour it, you've got seven years of famine. And then, then Joseph sticks his neck out, because you don't give Pharaoh counsel unless he asks for it. All he wanted was the dream. Joseph told him the dream. But then Joseph says, let me give you some advice, Pharaoh. He says, what you need to do is is find a point man. Somebody who will take on this project, who's a pretty good administrator, and have him build barns and, and build storage sheds and save as much grain as he can during these years of abundance so when the famine kicks in, Egypt's gonna be okay. And so Pharaoh, verse chapter forty-one, verse forty-one, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring, which was like his checkbook, from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger, and he dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck, and he had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way! Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. And J- Joseph goes from the pasture to the pit, to the pot, to the prison, to the palace. He's in the palace. Some of y'all are in the palace today. Uh, some of y'all are not sea students. Some of y'all have some good gifts. There's an aspiring future. We do the palace well, though. We like the palace. Think, think, think about Joseph. Of all the Mediterranean world, the most powerful nation is Egypt, and Joseph is number two in Egypt. He's in power. What does that power do to you? Well, what does what that, that affluence, what can it do to you? Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel. What, 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 what does all of the physique and the good all the stuff that the world wants, what can it do to you? Joseph's got it. And it's all tested because what's going to happen, if you read right on, is that this famine is also, I mean seven years he saves all this stuff, but then the famine hits. Well, famine is also hitting Canaan, where his brothers who sold them into slavery are living. All Jewish nation, about 70 people, 70 Jews in the whole world. But his brothers, their, their dad, Jacob says, they got food I hear in Egypt. Go get some. And so they all come, and Joseph is spilling it out, and he looks up one day, and there stand his brothers. The ones who sold him in Egypt. Now they don't recognize him because he's, you know, walking like an Egyptian and talking like an Egyptian, and he's, he's decked out. he's looking. There's many years ago. And who would expect? So they don't recognize him, but he recognizes them. Now, if this was you, what would you do? <laughs> oh, this is going to be good. I go. let me think, what can I do here? Yeah, I could see some vindication. This would be all right. But Joseph. He tests his brothers with these wild tests to see what's in their heart. And when he notices, he finds out they're repentant, that they're really sorry for what they've done. Joseph reveals himself to them. Uh, Chapter 45, verse 4, it says, Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. I can imagine they're getting a little bit nervous right here. And maybe that's why he says, and now do not be distressed. <laughs> I think they probably were. Oh no, we're dead. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because, because look at this, it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh and lord of his entire household. And chapter 50 is going to repeat this. Let me just mention this. This is wild. Verses 19 and 20 chapter 50. Uh, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. I know that. But God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. If you think back for a second, if Joseph had not been thrown in the pit, he would not have been sold to Potiphar. If he had not been sold to Potiphar, uh, he wouldn't have been framed by Mrs. Potiphar. If he wasn't framed by Mrs. Potiphar, he would not have ended up in the royal dungeon, very important place for him to be, because if he wasn't in the royal dungeon, he wouldn't have came across the butler and the baker Pharaoh's guys. And if he hadn't come across them, then I doubt the butler wouldn't have been able to tell Pharaoh about it. And if he wouldn't have been able to be brought into Pharaoh's throne room and, and give him the dream, he would have never have risen to this prominence. And, and did you see what he says here? He says, I'm in the palace, but I know you didn't put me here. And I'm not here because I'm so great. God put me here. If you are in the palace today, you need to know God put you there. And he did not put you there for your own comfort and for your own ambition and for your own reaching your own agenda and fulfilling your own bucket list. He put you there for the saving of many lives. Because the famine, if in fact Joseph had not been able to save the food... All of Israel, 70 people strong, would have died in starvation, dying with them, the hope of the Messiah. So God used Joseph in all of those things that he went through. we got to know, this is so encouraging for me, because nothing we go through is wasted. Nothing we go through is useless. Nothing we go through is empty. It is God working out his plan. Do we understand it all? No, I don't understand. I wish maybe I did. Maybe it's just too big for me. But I need to know that God does have a plan. He's sovereign. And I do need to know he's with me. He's always, always with me. And I need to know that in all those situations, my, my job, your job, is to trust and it's to be faithful. In every situation.